This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to Triple R Breakfasters podcast with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine for the week 7th to the 11th of March. A few highlights this week. Uh, we spoke to Lydia Lassela, who is the Olympic gold medalist aerial skier and a little pocket rocket. She was great. It's great talking to her. And also to Richard Dennis, who wrote a book uh, called Econobabble, um, just deciphering economy terms. It was actually quite interesting. We also discussed the best dog in Brunswick, which yes. Geraldine owned. And we talk- I think I own it, but other people disagree. <laughs> Opinions are divided. <laughs> and we talked about uh, sexism in music and the Amber Awards. Earlier this week, it was International Women's Day. Sarah, you put together a playlist that was all female artists, but some of the other stations um, had all female... DJs all on all female day presenters presenters yeah. that's the, the, <laughs> that that that's the word I'll give it. Do you guys think we should have done that? Um, I don't know. It was not something I really thought about. I think that we had lots of kind of guests across. I mean, I liked having you here, Jeff. I always like having you. But I think it's really cool. Whatever anyone does in their own way to recognise that day, and I think if someone say like a national broadcaster or if any broadcaster for that matter kind of can make a statement, I think it's good. Like I know across Triple R, we had lots of guests in on all of the shows, all the talk shows and stuff. It was a very kind of um, important day to be talking about women's issues. So I think, um, I just think whenever you have the chance to kind of bring up those things, it's really mm. important. Yeah. Oh, the only reason I mentioned it in this media segment is because we were just talking off air that apparently Triple J's got a whole bunch of um, pushback from... Um, that our... is not a surprise at all. Really? Absolutely. This is the world that we live in, Jeff. This <laughs> <laughs> is anything like women do something, like, and it's like, no, oh, men, what about us? It was the classic day of men going, when's our day? They have a day. There is, an, there is an international. There is an international men's day. Just for anyone that doesn't think yeah. there is, no. Um, it's oh, you know, it's we was. I saw that actually. Like, so there's a few articles floating about that are talking about the backlash, backlash that occurred, just saying that you know, it, you know, that it's really sexist and that why would you do that? And I just think it's really interesting. Like, the, even despite having an entire station and and different broadcasters mm. that you might respect, explaining to you why this is a really important thing and using it as a reason to highlight these issues, people are still like, I don't give a shit. But you know? even like even if you had you look at the the whole broadcast all the broadcasters and for that day like even that one station has all female broadcasters that still wouldn't even out the amount of men yes. that broadcast every day every day <laughs> well, I don't know I was thinking after after that um session that we had when, you know, it was an all-female playlist about how much good music we played that day. Yeah, you do, you know what else, and do you know what else I would have known? Is a lot of people wouldn't even have blinked an eyelid. They wouldn't even have noticed that it was all-female. No, although you do get this weird thing where people think music that's not heavy on guitars and it's not, you know, traditional kind of 4-4 rock is mm. somehow girly music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even, so even if it's not a female vocal, if it's not a female person, 
in the band or something that's really notable. It's it, it is, isn't it? It's a kind of idea of like trad rock is is masculine music, and if it's not trad rock, it's a, it's feminine music, which is really interesting gender line to be kind of pulling. And yeah. in a weird way, sort of black music ends up being feminized because <laughs> because it's not guitar rock. Yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a big complex issue. But hey, speaking of guitar rock, <laughs> I was at the Australian little segue. I was I was with a man uh, yesterday who was is very famous for his his hardcore punk and guitar rock Henry Rollins. This This is Henry Rollins or Hank as I like to call him. Um, (laughs) And he was the lead singer of a bunch of kind of hardcore bands um, most best known for his time in Black Flag and he was presiding over yesterday's Australian Music Prize which is why I wasn't here yesterday. I was just hanging out with Hank. Yeah right I mate with all the stuff (laughs) going on. Bet you didn't call him (laughs) Hank to his face. (laughs) I just whispered it from afar. Hank. Um, It was such a cool day so Courtney Barnett was the winner with Sometimes I uh, Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit. An album which you know, has had a lot of support. It's such a great album. It is. It is. Like, it's just an album like I don't listen to a lot of albums, but that is one album where I could quite happily sit and listen to one song after the other. Like it's, they're all great tracks. Uh, yeah, and no, I agree. In some ways, so it's kind of such an unlikely album to cross over and become such a huge hit, don't you reckon? It's so distinctly kind of Melbourne. Totally. And this is a thing that like has been discussed a lot, like how um someone from inner city Melbourne who is talking about really kind of parochial things in the sense that it's like about suburbs that we live in and issues that we face here, uh, has kind of kind of crossed over to a place like America. Like how are they connecting with her? And I think it's mm. just because she's such an intelligent lyricist and the way that she kind of constructs her songs is in, in such a way that it's like kind of tapping into something overseas, even though it feels like a really distinctly Australian album. Yeah, mm. it's fascinating. And was she there? Yeah, yeah, she was there. So she got up and accepted the award. All of the nominees were there. So some really brilliant records released last year. I think it was probably the strongest year in Australian music that we've had in some time. Uh, records from Dan Kelly, Dick Diver, Gold Class, Jess Ribeiro, Methyl Ethel, My Disco, Royal Headache, Sarah Blasco and Tame Impala were all nominated. Uh, but really inspiring was uh, Hank. Like all the artists got up <laughs> and spoke. But Hank did this great kind of piece where he was being interviewed and he talked about how important it is to support music in every capacity you can, like go out to shows, uh, buy merch, buy tickets, buy things that kind of support bands now. And he also was like, go and do art. He's like, life's short. We're all just going to die. Just art out is what he said. He was really encouraging, you know. And sometimes Hank can be a bit insufferable when he's like, rah, rah, rah. But he was just so inspirational. Everyone in the room was like, wanted to go out and start a band or buy some music, yeah, you I know. I want to draw a picture right now. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. he was so cool. And he actually gave some really cool anecdotes about, I mean, he loves Australian music and on the radio show he has, he plays almost 50% Australian music. Wow. He's a massive fan. So he kind of really? was rattling off all these bands that he loves, yeah. And he was saying, he gave an anecdote about how when he was in LA, Dick Diver were playing over there and he went down to the show and there was about, you know, 10 people in the audience or whatever because, you know, just this little Aussie band and he loves their record. And he goes up to the band after the show and goes, oh, you know, where, where are you guys sleeping? Where are you guys sleeping tonight? And they're like, oh. And he goes, doesn't matter. I've already set up the beds. And he was like, <laughs> took, took them back to his house. You probably thought he was some kind of serial killer. <laughs> but like, it's Slumber like, party. <laughs> totally. But like, that's, and I love that. It's like that kind of like 80s, like hardcore attitude where you just like travelled around America and slept on everyone's floor or whatever. So I was like, yeah, high five and Hank. Good on you, Hank. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.
the new book Econo Babel has the fascinating subtitle How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. The author is Richard Dennis, the Chief Economist at the Australian Institute. He joins us in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. 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 In the book, you argue that bad economic arguments without the faintest theoretical or empirical foundation dominate public debate. So let's quickly go through some of these bad arguments. One of the ones that really jumped out of me, you say that in discussions of climate change, most participants don't know that coal is actually massively subsidised by the taxpayer. Yes, always has been, uh, and not just in Australia, all around the world. Um, Our coal-fired power stations were once built by the state. Uh, The wires, the cables, all of the rail and other infrastructure, the ports, they're all built by government. Um, We exempt them from enormous amounts of tax, we uh, we give them free water, you name it, we, we subsidise every step of the coal extraction and, uh, and burning process. And then we talk about how cheap it is. Well, schools are cheap because the taxpayer picks up the tab, you know, sending kids to school in Australia is cheap and that's a great thing. We've made education cheap through subsidies. Well, we've made coal cheap. And that's an argument that's totally um, missing from debates about climate change. There's another argument that's totally missing from just about any debates that you make in the book. You say that most of the common arguments about unemployment have no basis at all, that the government could, if it wanted to, reduce unemployment, but it chooses not to. Can you explain that? Absolutely. And and people, when I talk about this, it always seems a bit more controversial than it is. I'm an economist. I've taught economics for 20 years. Nothing I'm about to say... uh, uh, will really be argued with by by any academic economist. Um, the Reserve Bank of Australia targets uh, having around five or six hundred thousand unemployment. That's the goal of our policy. And if unemployment is lower than that, they get worried. If unemployment fell to one hundred thousand, they'd panic. Wow. And, and they actually <laughs> see again. Yeah, yeah. I hate to say it. Everyone in economics knows this. So if unemployment is quote too low, we don't say unemployment's too low. We say things like the economy's overheated, or the economy's growing too fast, or inflationary pressures are developing. What they really mean is nearly everyone's got a job, and we're worried that if everyone's got a job, the next thing is people will ask for wage rises. So it's uncontroversial, I assure you. If you go to the Reserve Bank <laughs> website or the Treasury website, you'll, you'll find that having an unemployment rate of around 5 or 6% is, is what we think... We actually call that full employment. We say the economy is fully employed when only half a million people are unemployed. All right, continuing the economical myth-busting, as it were, one of the other claims you make in the book is that a budget surplus is not a profit. Now, most people are accustomed to thinking a budget surplus is the most important thing and it's almost like a grocer's shop that you're running and if you don't have a a surplus, then your shop is going broke. Yeah, and and this is one of the big problems is that in the last 10 or 15 years, um, we've kind of transformed our public debate and and that's kind of why I talk about this economy babble, that we, we, we throw jargon around as if everyone understands it. And, and most people feel too embarrassed to say, actually, I don't really know what a budget surplus is. Could you clarify that for me? So people in public debate know full well that the public think a profit and a surplus are the same thing. So if you thought a profit and a surplus were the same thing, well done. That's what, yeah. that's what we expect you that to think. That was me. Well, <laughs> but this is 
the point. It's it's not. And unless you understand the subtleties of the definitions, you will be confused, which is, of course, the point. We're trying to confuse people. So companies running at a profit can keep going. Companies that run losses after year after year would go broke and shut down. So we, we tell people in public debate, well, because the government's running a deficit, brackets, sounds like a loss, um, that can't keep going forever. They'll go broke soon. Well, it's not true. So let me give you an example. A surplus simply means that you spent less money than you got last year. And a deficit simply means you spent more money than you got last year. <laughs> Anyone who's ever bought a house ran up a huge deficit. But most people don't think buying a house is a bad idea. Mm. If that house means you don't pay rent for the next 40 years, it's probably a good idea. So just looking at how much cash came in and how much cash went out ignores all of the subtlety of, well, what kind of investments are we making? What would the future return from that be? And all of that is lost when we just say, well, more money went out last year than came in, we're going to hell in a handbasket. It might be true. You can make really bad decisions and waste a lot of money. But most people don't think buying a house is a terrible idea. Most people don't think buying a car is a terrible idea. But in our public debate, we now treat building a school or building a hospital as a terrible idea. Mm. It's got nothing to do with economics. It's just, it's just bizarre. We're leading up to an election probably um, maybe in July, people are saying. Now, mostly when there's an election, we start to hear from people um, talking about economic models and what the economic models say. In the book, you say economic modelling is mostly a con job. Yeah, pretty much. And, and, my, and my PhD was in why economic modelling was a con job. So I, I, I do hold this view strongly. Um, look, there's an, there's, a, there's an old saying with all forms of modelling, garbage in, garbage out. You can't understand or take seriously the conclusions of any modelling exercise unless you really understand the assumptions that went in. And what politicians do and what business groups increasingly do is they, they pay some consultants to, frankly, put quite ridiculous assumptions into a model, knowing full well no one will ever read it. And all they want is the headline. You know, my policy will boost the economy by $10 billion. Labor's policy will wreck the economy by $20 billion. You're just buying a headline. And unless we carefully interrogate the assumptions in the model, and we shouldn't pay any attention. You say right at the start, there's a really key point, I think, to this whole book. You say markets don't have feelings, rich people have feelings. <laughs> How did we end up in a situation where we just accept that there is no alternative to whatever the market says? Like the market has become this dictator that says things and then we have to do them. Oh, good. That was my favourite quote. <laughs> um, yeah, look, we'll often hear on the news that the market reacted angrily today. Angry the, market. Yeah, the markets are nervous. The markets are this. The markets are that. Well, let's be clear, a market is a real thing. A fish market is where people who've got fish and people who want fish come together. A stock market is where people who own shares and people who want to buy shares come together. But the market doesn't feel anything. What does the fish market feel today? Smelly. No, it smells. <laughs> so, so, so the point is that a market is a real thing. But it's the people who participate in the market who feel happy or sad. It's the people who are buying or selling shares who are happy or sad. But it sounds more objective to say the markets reacted angrily to government proposals to collect tax from rich people than rich people reacted angrily today. 
<laughs> at suggestions that we should collect more tax from rich people. So talking about the market mystifies something. It, it, it creates, you know, they're like the Greek gods. They're, they're, they're looking over us. They're judging us. We, we need to appease them. But they're not gods. They're just people that own a lot of shares. And is this language that's been used since the beginning of time since the beginning of markets you know is that or is it is it something that's developed quite recently yeah look i mean i tried so jargon is fine i mean i speak to other economists in jargon i think jargon's fine between consenting adults <laughs> um football fans talk quickly to each other and i don't understand a word of it i can decode it for you <laughs> well, that's good, exactly. and, and someone who understands it can decode it for an outsider mm. so i i use the term econobabble in the book not to just say jargon exists it has existed forever but for me econobabble is the willful desire to use jargon to confuse people mm. you know if you and i share a jargon i'm sure when you talk to other radio producers you can talk more quickly about what you need than if you were explaining it to me that's fine but when you know i don't speak your language and you're talking at me as if i did you're not trying to persuade me you're not trying to help me you're trying to silence me and that's, you know, I, I say in the book that, you know, a lot of Catholic priests once preached in Latin to, to, a, to an audience that didn't speak Latin. It wasn't to persuade them. It was to silence them because you can't argue back when you don't understand. Mm. The book is titled Econobabble, a great word, How to Decode Political Spin and Economic Nonsense. The author is Richard Dennis. Thank you so much for coming to Triple R. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Uh, so I know you said you were going to do media, but let's do that at the normal time, 6.45. <laughs> let's. Uh, I, I thought I'd talk about... Um, uh, yesterday was the Sydney Road Street Festival. Yes. And part of that they had the inaugural... Uh, best dog in Brunswick oh, show. You were mentioning you had yes, had, I entered had a dog in that fight as yes, it were. Yes, yes, <laughs> I entered uh, Lloyd and also his sister Harriet Chalmers Adams. They're not real sisters, are they? No, no, oh, no. Okay. One's a Chihuahua cross Papillon, and okay. the other one's a, <laughs> a coolie. So okay. yeah, but they love each other like adopted brothers and sisters should. Uh, so. It was really great. It was so packed. Like, it was down at the Charles Weston Hotel and we got there early and, and got set up. But I I got really nervous and I was supposed to take... <laughs> like a stage mum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. And I was supposed to take Lloyd around. Like, he was my dog and I was supposed to walk him up and down the the um, green carpet. Is, is, that, is that how they get judged they walk up yeah yeah so they'd call us out one at a time and they'd and we'd walked and it was so packed and and stuff and um and then they'd yeah and then there was the other segments like there was best costume and then there was um best trick or most enthusiastic dog (laughs) yeah best trick and um the senior citizens award and um and then oh then it was just like best overall dog oh and also they gave a prize out for best um, owner lookalike owner and dog lookalike. Oh. Not, sure that, yeah. not sure that'd be a good thing to win, would it? Well, it's just there was the people that did the girl that did win. She had the same shirt on as a dog, so ah, right. oh, so it wasn't yeah. like you're a dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, so, but I got really nervous because I was just I was worried that um, Lloyd wasn't going to behave very well, and then I'd I'd be seen as someone that couldn't control their dog. So I got. <laughs> 
really I said I don't, don't think I can do it <laughs> so I, I did almost cry um so then uh Catherine was like oh how about you take Harry and and I'm like okay yeah because Harry is just the most chilled out dog like so well trained and she's just like yeah whatever I'll do what you want like you know she's off lead a lot of the time and stuff so so we swapped and I'm glad that we did because um <laughs> Lloyd Lloyd did like he's quite enthusiastic most of the time like when we, we put him in the most enthusiastic section it was like oh yeah we're gonna you know he's gonna because he just jumps up and down so on the spot. So most enthusiastic that's kind of like a euphemism for out of control. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. untrained most untrained. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so he would he just jumps up and down on the spot and he just tries to oh he gets oh, la, 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 la. Um, except he just went out and sat down. On oh, the are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah, failed. Yeah. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R. The Will to Fly, it's a new documentary released in cinemas on March 10. It's about uh, Olympic aerial ski champion Lydia Lassalar uh, and her quest to complete a quadruple twisting triple somersault on skis, a manoeuvre that only men had completed before. It's, we're very pleased to welcome Lydia to the Triple R studio. Wow, thanks yeah. for having me. <laughs> what an Lydia. intro. Hi. <laughs> it's a great pleasure. This is a film about all kinds of amazing things. For me, one of the first things that jumped out at me as amazing was that you grew up in in sunshine, which sure seems, did. seems to be about <laughs> as far as possible as you could get from the skiing. Anything, kind of. yeah. <laughs> so Opportunity, you say. <laughs> is that one of the first things that Australians have to overcome if they want to become, you know, ski champions? That it's sure not do. really a ski country, is it? No, I mean we have a very short winter, so there's obviously skiing here. I, I started skiing at our at our home mountain here at Mount Buller. And um, but if you want to get to the top, if you want to have a successful kind of professional career, yeah, you've got to ship yourself overseas and and do the hard yards. And we did ten months, you know, every year overseas. So it's it's quite a long time to give up everything else in life. (laughs) You were late coming into this sport because you started off as a gymnast. So how old were you when you first learnt how to ski? Eighteen. That's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah, that I gives. I feel like that gives people like me hope. Hope. That there's a chance. Sure. <laughs> you can learn right. anything. If this radio thing doesn't work out. <laughs> I've got new recruits going <laughs> today, guys. Just sign up right here. Because <laughs> you, you, we watch footage of you learning how to ski and doing your first jump and whatnot in in the doco, and it is like, where is your fear? It's like you have no fear. I didn't have much fear as a kid mm. and then probably as a younger aerial skier I was um, – I felt the fear but I just went anyway. I just charged ahead. I was a bit bit naive I suppose and reckless. But, um, I, I, yeah, I learnt fear yeah, right. <laughs> later on and what uh, what can actually happen to you makes you a little bit more wary and a bit more cautious. Because well, mm. that's sort of a real theme of the documentary, isn't it? You suffer – some horrendous injuries. You do these, I mean, how do I put it, kind of insane <laughs> things on, on, on skis that look absolutely terrifying. Big to, crashes. Yeah. They're fabulous. <laughs> and no. then you're compelled to just keep on, keep on, keep on going. Where does this competition, this intense drive to do these things come from? Oh, I've had it from since I was so little and I can't explain it, but mum, you know, took me to calisthenics class when I was three years old and 
whilst all the other three-year-olds and four-year-olds are running around and going back to mummy and whatever, I was there glued to the instructor at the front just copying every move, you know, she was doing. So I just had that intensity and I guess it's just carried... I'm a pretty intense person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> carried through the rest of my career as an aerial scare. I think one of my favourite parts of the, the documentary was watching your mum watching you at at the Olympics and... You're a real sucker for punishment then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it was so uh, emotional. Like it was, you know, obviously... Yeah, her and also your mother-in-law has obviously been a great Mm. support. Like do you think you would have achieved what you had of if you didn't have that family support? No way. No, Mm. especially going back as a mum with Kai. um, I really needed, you know, my mum, my mother-in-law, Lowry, my husband to just really chip in there at times where, you know, I was off being professional athlete and focused and they were filling in the gaps as mummy. So mm. um, I was always there but we had to kind of, you know, when it was time Work to train and, and, yeah, definitely. Wow. So that I could keep focused and not to mention my mum who was my personal taxi <laughs> from the age of eight. <laughs> like she, yeah, nothing would have happened without her. Talking mm. about supported. It shows, the film shows a quite, what seems to be quite a small world of high-level skiers. You all know each other. In one sense, you're all friends and you have this kind of intense relationship. On the other hand, you're all competing against each other quite fiercely. It must be a sort of odd frenemy relationship. It is totally frenemy. You've (laughs) got to turn that on-off switch. You know, right, it's competition time. You know, you're not my friend right now. I'm here to beat you. And then it's afterwards because... It's such a sport that, you know, it's so intense and it's... Um, I, I think each competitor has this mutual respect for each other because you know the risks involved, you know what they're going through, you know that they've gone through what you, you have in terms of injury and setback and fear, facing that fear on a daily basis. So mm. I think we all really have this mutual respect for one another. and um, But then, it's you know, competition time switch comes on, we're we're there to compete. That's what we're there for. (laughs) Okay, in the documentary, you win gold in the Olympics. We say that so casually, like that's something just (laughs) people do. (laughs) And then immediately you start retraining for the quadruple twisting triple somersault. So for the listeners, what is the quadruple twisting triple somersault and why is it so significant? Well, before I came along, it was a trick that the men had mastered only. So I saw a gap as a young aerial skier and I thought well I you know it was a huge gap at the time women weren't doing this trick they weren't even close and um I thought well why is this the case you know we've all got two arms two legs it's not a sport dependent mm. on brute strength it's a technical sport there was men of very different sizes doing it so that's what I made my mission you know to close that gap and try and do that trick and it was kind of this seed had been planted very early on and I had to do this trick. So it was very important to me. But in essence, you ski into a four-metre jump um, at 70 kilometres an hour, do three flips. It's called a kicker because it kicks you up in the air and you'll do three flips, hopefully. And in that three flips, you're going to do four spins, four rotations. So why was it a trick that just the men had mastered? Like why was it something that was associated with male skiing and not female skiing at the time? Well, it's just the evolution of the sport. The women were predominantly doing, and they still are, predominantly doing double somersaults. Okay. And it's a big step to do triples and it's quite a bit more risky, but the competition, the feel doesn't dictate, you know, that women have to do triples like it does the men. If men did doubles, they wouldn't get anywhere. Yeah. So they, so it's changing. There's a few, there's always been a handful of women trying to progress 
and trying to do these triple somersaults and, and you know, we're getting so much better at them um, and it just takes takes time and it takes those special women that want to put it all on the line because when I started and, you know, I was competing all those years, you didn't have to do triples to win. Mm. You, did, you could do doubles and I had so many people say, well, you don't need to do these triple somersaults to win, especially coming after a knee. There's all these excuses, you know, like you've had so many injuries, why don't you just stick to the double? And But it was a personal kind of mission of mind and I wanted to jump like my idols, which were the male male field. So, You mm. suffer a lot of injuries in your career. The film shows lots of other people suffering kind of horrendous injuries and I think someone in the film says, oh, if you're a professional athlete, you have to have a really high pain threshold do you ever wonder if it's worth it um ask me in about 20 years <laughs> rolling around but um look I believe it is yeah I, I mean I've got lasting memories and you know feelings of of being an elite athlete has given me so much it's you know in essence stripped me down to my complete core <laughs> yeah and bare bones and but that is, you know, I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. And I've been to those places where I've really had to dig deep to to pull out some amazing performances. So I think no no other experience in life, nothing else will give me that, you know, and that's what I hold dear. Mm. It's a, the sport of aerial skiing, um, it seems that in Australia women do very well. Um, and I don't, I couldn't name any male aerial skiers, but I, you know, I could name... We've got one, David Morris. <laughs> well, there you go. So wh- why is it, is it, what, what's with the separation between men and women in this sport? Or is there one? Probably not um, as much as you think. Um, we've been predominantly a, a female funded sport. So we had success early on with with the likes of Kirsty Marshall, who then, you know, uh, Jackie Cooper then carried that on, and so did Elisa Camplin. Mm. So there's just been this kind of female legacy. Um, it has been, you know, said that it is easier to create a female champion in aerial skiing because the as standard is well, no, because the standard is in essence uh. lower, right? So the man that proved that wrong. And our sport is interesting because we are very gender equal, but this is a case where it went the other way, <laughs> that um, it was really hard for the likes of David Morris to come into our system because it was predominantly funded for females. Right. And so he had to break his own ground through there after being knocked back, knocked back, knocked back. Wow. You know, no, it's too difficult to get men to this level and he proved them wrong. He won silver medal in Sochi Olympics. So there's a few things in there that, you know, we're, I mean... If someone has the determination, if someone has the will to to want to push the boundaries and push themselves, they will make it in anything. They will be the best in anything yeah. that they want to be. But I suppose it, so it shows a, a really good example of, you know, how, you know, in, in a privileged kind of example, like you, women do well in this sport because you've got that environment around you, whereas that's not always the case in different sports or in life no, in general. Yeah. Anyway. The film is entitled Sorry. The Will to Fly. It's in cinemas on March 10th. There is a premiere, special premiere tonight at the Riverley Cinemas in Hawthorne that I believe people can just rock up to. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely um, not. Okay. Well, people can wait till it's in cinemas on March 10th. But uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing document. It's been great talking to Lydia Lassala. Thank you very much for coming in. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.